The following podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It does not reflect the views or opinions of my university or its affiliates. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and as always, welcome to the Sister Wives Professor. That's me. I'm Dr. Adam, a professor of interpersonal and family communication, and a follower of the TLC series, Sister Wives. And of course, that's what we're here to talk about today, isn't it? Specifically, Season 2, Episode 7, The Brown Family Decision. Before we get to that, of course, I need to give a special thank you to my patrons over at patreon.com slash the sister wives professor y'all are the best and hey even if you're not a patron just the fact that you listen to this podcast is amazing and very much appreciated so thank you for doing that let's talk about the episode i notice immediately as this episode opens that the producers or editors or whomever are trying to really lay on the drama so to say We open the episode with like a loud bong noise and footage of a police car. They're trying to invoke in us, the viewer, this sense of impending doom and stress that the Brown family are feeling about the investigation that they're under ever since they went public. And I don't know about you, but especially going back and re-watching it, it just feels forced to me. It feels pretty over the top. But, I don't know, maybe we'll talk about that more as I go. The episode itself really gets going and opens up with some, I thought, pretty heartwarming, personally, footage of the brown kids playing in the snow in front of the big house. Gwendolyn is making some snow angels. Savannah is rolling a big snowball, probably to make a snowman. They also cut in some B-roll of the Christmas tree lot that we will see later, including a person performing as Santa. Now, any kids listening to this, this wasn't the real Santa. You know how sometimes grown-ups will go and, like, you know, be in Santa's place? And it's not the real Santa there, because, you know, Santa can do a lot, but he can't be everywhere all the time the entire Christmas season. So that's all this was. It was just one of those guys that's, like, helping Santa out. Cody doing some voiceover talking about Christmas is approaching. And this whole thing, by the way, was kind of weird because we've learned in the intervening years from Robin's narrative that Cody never cared about Christmas and he never liked it until she entered the family. I will talk about that later. But anyway, Cody's talking about how they're going to a remote cabin without cell phone service, which 
I really like the first part of that statement, and I really don't like the second part. (laughs) Going to a remote cabin, and I do end up with serious cabin envy as I watch this, by the way, but that would be great. Not having cell phone service? No thank you. No thank you, Daddy. All the Browns are on the couch, the adults anyway, talking about what's going on, and Janelle mentions this online magazine, as she calls it, which had quoted the county prosecutor, Donna Kelly. There's a big boom sound again from the editors, and they make they use this sound effect. It's, it's like kind of like the big bong they do in like the Christopher Nolan movie trailers, I feel like, anyway. By the way, the terminology Janelle uses, online magazine, very of its time. An online magazine, they put up a black background with white text after the big boom noise to try to make us all scared. And it says that the Browns have definitely made it easier for us by admitting to felonies on national TV. Again, this is by Donna Kelly, the deputy county attorney. I did a quick search. It does look like Donna is still a practicing attorney. She co-authored an opinion piece in early 2023 about some proposed legislation that she was opposed to. Her LinkedIn is up. It's pretty sparse, though. There's like nothing on it. That's all I could find. I like to look this stuff up because I'm just so genuinely curious, but this was kind of nothing. Janelle tellingly says that this news from the prosecutor spooked their community. So not just the Brown family, right, but their entire community. You gotta wonder what kind of messages the Brown family received from the folks in the AUB after this sort of potential legal blowback specifically. Could not have been super positive, I wouldn't think. Janelle points out that in the quote, the prosecutor said that they will make a decision in 60 to 90 days. And Janelle even qualifies that by saying whatever that means. Gotta kind of agree with Janelle, like 60 to 90 days you'll do what? Prosecute? Decide whether or not you'll prosecute? That kind of ambiguity and uncertainty would just sort of pile on the stress, right? It's You'd almost rather know how bad it's going to potentially be than be left that much up in the air, probably. Cody on the couch, by the way, is wearing a salmon-colored button-down that makes me want to quit this podcast forever. I just look at that shirt and I don't know what it is. I just don't want to do this anymore. Cody, Cody, honest to God, walked into a store, saw that shirt, and said, yep, that's for me. Yep, I, I have this money. Please take my money. I would rather have that shirt than money. Cody sounds very serious. He's leaning forward towards the camera with his intense face on talking about physiological reactions to the stress of the investigation, talks about his chest just, and he pauses and kind of loses the plot a little bit. Then he makes a little circle with his hand, saying that his eyes dilate. Cody is coming across, shaken up, his his head is shaking, his voice is kind of quavery. It's definitely not his normal way of speaking. But folks, as I watched this, and I, I rewatched this part a couple times, I, the more I watched it, the more I think he's putting it on a little bit. This did not come across as being super genuine to me. He Later in the episode, I'll tell you, he did sound genuinely upset. Here, this sounded like he was making a pathos plea to the audience. And this is kind of confirmed for me, because he goes on to talk and says, when you're just a small little peon against Goliath, what can you do? So he's doing this sort of what we call a pathos plea in persuasive speaking. So when I teach public speaking, one of the things that I teach is ethos, logos, and pathos, which are like the three kind of pleas you can make to persuade someone about your point. A pathos plea can be the most effective, but it's also the most dangerous because you can do too much, and if it seems disingenuous, people can really turn on you. 
So pathos just means like a plea to your emotions. Like, do you remember the Sarah McLaughlin, you know, adopt an animal PSA that everyone like famously was just like too depressed by? That's like too much pathos for a lot of people, too much emotion. Because even if the emotion comes across as genuine, if it overloads you, you just can't handle it. Nope, nope, nope. And you're not even persuaded. That's not what Cody's doing. I do think Cody is trying too hard to be like, I'm just this tiny little baby boy. What could I do? It's like, yeah, we get it. Okay, but you're a grown man. You made this decision. You knew there would be some sort of blowback. That's all just to say that if Cody was coming across more sincere in this moment, like he does later in the episode, it would have landed better for me than it did here. As it stands here, didn't work for me. Cody shakes his head, raises and lowers his eyebrows, denoting, I think, some sort of acceptance or resignation. He says that the stress usually falls on the leader, subtextually meaning him. He says, fortunately, he has four other sets of shoulders to share it with. As he's saying this on the couch, Mary and Robin are both looking very intently at Cody, with either sadness or seriousness on their faces. Christine and Janelle are both just avoiding eye contact altogether, including with the camera. Janelle, especially throughout this episode and the couch footage, looks very shell-shocked, very upset. Getting back to Christmas, we see footage in the brown house of Christmas ornaments with photos of a younger-looking Mary and Cody. Cody, we hear him laughing in resignation, saying it's Christmas with a lot of extra stress. And Janelle stumbles over her words a bit, I think belying that she's stressed out. She raises her eyebrows and says it's a lot of prep to take everything with them to the cabin for Christmas. And yeah, no, there's a lot of stuff, trust me. Robin starts ticking off things on her fingers that they have to bring, kind of loudly interrupting Janelle. And interestingly, Janelle doesn't roll over. She continues to talk, so they kind of compete. They kind of cross-talk. And Janelle starts doing the same ticking off items on one hand gesture, which I thought was interesting, mirroring her and Robin talking over each other about the same thing, doing the exact same gesture. That was just weird. You got to wonder, like, who was mirroring who? But but it makes sense. Like the, when you're around somebody a lot, you can really kind of subconsciously start to mirror the way they speak and even the way they move and their gestures without meaning to. So that could be what's going on. I'm not sure. Anyway, they all start cross-talking. All the wives do, not Cody. But they're listing off all the things they have to bring. Food, trees, etc. Christine gives a sad and I think maybe annoyed shake of her head. It was pretty small. I don't think she's like upset necessarily, but she's definitely not in a good mood. That's what's at least coming to the surface. Cody, I think, picking up on this, he tries to turn the mood around by saying he hopes the cabin helps them check out from all of this and that this works, and wives seem to agree. Most of them nod or at least make some sort of affirming statement or noise. Janelle emphasizes that she wants the kids to be out of the normal environment. Mary, however, torpedoes the whole thing and brings the whole mood back down, (laughs) saying they have big decisions to make, alluding to the move, I guess. Cody immediately after this, like his his energy he was trying to cobble together to be positive, just deflates. He looks subdued, he looks sad, and he agrees, says, yeah, very big. So I don't think Mary read the room here. I think Mary was thinking too much about her own stress and maybe didn't pick up on the fact that Cody was trying to kind of rally them a little bit. Anyway, we cut to Mary on the roof of the house for some reason. Y'all know how I feel about heights, I won't talk about it, but watching this footage gave me secondhand vertigo. That was fun. Leon is climbing up onto the roof as well, handing Mary some Christmas lights. It looks like very windy weather. Getting up on the roof too, Leon lets out this very loud, wet cough. 
which gave me anxiety because it's cold and flu season here right now, and everyone in my house, including me, is constantly sick. Mary looks down from the roof talking to a camera person on the ground, and this like upward shot that the camera person is doing, Mary looked like super cool. I thought she looked kind of rad, like almost like a superhero shot. Anyway, she's talking about how she always does the lights on the house. She opens her hands a bit, and she gestures, saying that sometimes the boys help, but she's the one who likes the lights on the house, and so she does it. She's a little bit out of breath. She sounds matter-of-fact as she's talking about having to be the one that does it. She does not sound annoyed, or like this lack of help is, is really an issue. If anything, she sounds just more like she's clarifying that she does it by herself because she likes it so much, and so she, she doesn't seem bothered, I guess is what I'm trying to say. From what I can infer, Mary reacts to a producer question, and Mary says, guys are supposed to do it, so I'm guessing they asked, aren't the guys supposed to be doing this? And Mary seems to agree, says, but they don't. Shades of the person that they are going to someday become, Leon hears this on the roof, walks over to their mom, purposefully saying, that is so sexist, with that kind of emphasis. Mary points to Leon in agreement when Leon says, girls can do anything a boy can do. Kind of an interesting moment here because that was not Mary's original thought. It didn't sound like it. It sounded like something that Mary was fed to respond to. Now, Mary did agree that the boys should help, but it was just kind of funny because Leon seemed kind of incensed. So, I don't know. It was just kind of a funny way that was put together. I can see why they cut out the actual question because typically they don't leave those in right in the talking heads or wherever we, sometimes you do, but not very often do you see like the captioned question from the director or whomever. Mary seems quite happy, by the way, up high on the roof doing the lights until Leon points out that a bulb is out and Mary kind of growls in frustration, being every parent who has ever hung lights on a roof. This made me laugh, by the way, because it reminded me of when I was young and my dad would make me come like hold the flashlight when he was trying to like change a flat tire or my dad was trying to put up Christmas lights and like I was happy to help and also terrified because I was in the blast radius for when he would inevitably lose his temper. <laughs> so I'd be like, Adam, come here, hold this flashlight. And I'd be like, oh, sweet, beautiful baby Jesus, please don't let him scream at me. <laughs> let him maybe blame himself for his own mistakes, but... Yeah, you, you've probably been there. Were you that kid? Let me know. Let me know. Leave me a comment. Send me an email. Do whatever. The sisterwivesprofessor at gmail.com. Did you have to go through this too, where you had that parent who would just have you quote unquote help, but really you just kind of stood there waiting to get yelled at? Because I feel like that's probably a more universal experience than I think it is. Anyway, Mary finishes up with the lights, declares victory, and so we see not one but two dogs in the front yard. I'm guessing this is Drake and someone else. I don't know. Robin is not around, so the dogs seem quite at peace and quite safe. They do kind of a fun transition as they crossfade from footage of Mary and Leon on the roof of the house in daylight to at nighttime when the house lights are lit up. There are some notable gaps along the lights, and, you know, just it gave me real big Clark Griswold anxiety energy right now. In voiceover, Christine is talking about how this always happens and kind of does this funny imitation of Mary's frustration. Janelle, I think, was trying to be kind and help Mary save some face, saying, you know, well, the weather did get icy, which Mary agrees with. Mary says, you know, she can't be out there doing the lights when it gets slippery, which is true. 
Christine makes a weird face, like she agrees with Perry, then she thinks it over, and then she agrees again, kind of just a weird series. And then she says, thanks, Mary, for not being on the slippery roof. And I thought she sounded sincere, but if you watch this, Mary in the immediate makes like a face like she thought Christine was being sarcastic. But then I think Mary cued in that Christine was actually being sincere, because Mary breaks into a big, broad smile and laughs. So between Christine's multiple faces and Mary, I think not completely understanding what she was saying right away, it was just a lot of different rapid-fire like emotions or, or just expressions surfacing between the two of them. So now the Brown family is assembled in a living room in the big house, Mary's living room it looked like. Cody is sitting near the piano. Kids are all sitting around or standing. Janelle is on a couch holding Savannah. Logan is holding Brianna. I notice in this shot, though it changes, first Garrison is seated quite far away from everyone else. He's actually over far away in the kitchen area. Anyway, Logan takes a piece of paper from a bowl, which is patiently being held out by Hunter. Hunter's kind of frowning. Logan announces in a stage voice that he has Aurora, and this is the Christmas present raffle they do where the kids all choose one of their siblings to get a gift for. The kids all cheer this news that Logan selected Aurora, and Aurora raises her arms, and it's like this large, open-mouthed expression of joy. She's very happy. Dayton gets Peyton, Leon gets Savannah, which seemingly makes Leon very happy. Gabriel gets Madison, and he cheers it more than says it, really excited, I think, to get his older sister. Madison, very sweetly in her tone, says Brianna Rose, so invoking Brianna's middle name as a sign of closeness and specificity. Brianna raises an arm, smiling, still sitting in Logan's lap. Cody explains this process, says that it allows each kid to get another kid a gift and make them better quality for everyone. I don't often say this, but I think Cody sounds smart, or at least thoughtful. Here, because it just kind of makes sense, right? It's a lot of kids, and this builds community. It allows each child to be thoughtful about what to do for the other one, maybe create some things. It's practical. It's helpful. Like I said, it's community building. It's, it's just a good idea, especially with this many people. Garrison is now, he's no longer sitting far away like he was. He's actually sitting on the couch where Janelle and Savannah were. And he tells the camera that four moms means four extra presents. He sounds a bit shy, though, as he says it. I don't think he's super camera comfortable yet, which honestly makes sense. Mary does respond to this by praising his intelligence, which seems to make him happy. I thought it was a nice little moment between Mary and Garrison. Not a combination you see a whole lot of in the show, I don't think. Cody's talking now about how long Christmas morning can take. He's very performative and dramatic, saying very very, very long time with specific kind of inflection like that, lowering his tone and his rate of speech. Robin points at Cody and says he runs out of patience. How does she know that? Have they celebrated? Can somebody tell me? Have they even celebrated? I know not on the show. How could they have had a Christmas together? This is more weird forcing of her credentials in the family, I think. I know this is a sticking point for me, and I bring it up a lot, but it really becomes clear as you pay attention to these old episodes. Cody keeps talking. He, he just starts talking about former Christmases, by the way, and Janelle lets out this belly laugh, this big, joyful laugh, and she finishes actually Cody's thought for him that they've had to stop and have lunch in the middle of opening gifts, and she laughs again. Big, honest laugh, quite charming. Oh, and here we go. Here's the Christmas tree lot with Matt, who seems to be the proprietor. 
of said Christmas tree lot. I've got a lot of things to say about Matt and his I'm going to sell you a PlayStation out of the trunk of my car energy that he's got. He's got quite the beard. I really like Matt. I'm not kidding. He's engaging the kids quite well, I thought, asking them questions, listening to their answers. Good salesmanship. He offers to show everybody a tree that smells good. Mary, kind of walking away, looks at the camera and shrugs helplessly as if she has no idea what's happening. Maybe it's the smell comment. But as we'll see, Mary gets into that in a second. Speaking of which, Gwen just takes this invitation, gets right up to the tree, and I think gets a really good whiff of it. Good for her. Go for the gusto, I say. Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Matt is explaining, you know, tree stuff to all the assembled browns, and I notice Logan does not look particularly impressed. Mary looks at the camera, pointing and waving a finger, saying Cody would like that tree. She says he likes smelly trees. He likes smelly trees. He likes, he likes smelly trees. He likes smelly trees. Can we put that on a shirt? You guys keep joking with me about how I need shirts. Would you wear a shirt that just said he likes smelly trees? Because I would. Somebody get on that. Matt emphasizes as they walk away to make sure to take the kids to see Rudolph. They have a reindeer there. Does anyone else feel weird about this kind of thing? I got no problem with petting zoos. I have no situation where animals are being cared for responsibly. Just these sort of fly-by-night things or they have some kind of random animal. I'm not saying they don't take care of the animals. I'm sure they do, but I just worry that they don't. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to get on my high horse, no pun intended. But it just it just just puts me on edge. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Anyway, they end up asking Matt's Dollar General Santa Claus, whose beard looks about as real as my dad's MBA, informing them that reindeer only fly on Christmas Eve. Which again, kids, that is true. The real Santa knows. Mary goes absolutely gaga over some pink and red Christmas trees, which I'm sorry is downright heretical. I know I don't yuck anybody's yum on this podcast, that's not what I do, but have you never seen a Charlie Brown Christmas, for Christ's sake? Like, why did Linus have to give us that speech? If y'all are still buying... Okay, I gotta calm down. Get whatever kind of Christmas tree makes you happy. That's what I mean to say. That's all I ever said. You don't remember anything else. Back on the couch, by the way, Christine channels me because I'm lying, I don't like this, and she makes this disgusted face in reaction to these colored trees, rolls her eyes. Mary says Christine wasn't having it, which is clearly true. Mary says they were cool, and in all sincerity, if you like that kind of stuff, that's great. Mary is talking to Matt, the tree merchant who, I guarantee, has made home-brewed liquor in his bathtub at least one point in his life. Mary finds out there's no mistletoe left. And Mary cringes very, very dramatically and jumps up and down, kind of childlike in her disappointment. Matt engages with this quite a bit, very expressive very active in his nonverbal signals towards her to demonstrate engagement and to show that he's he's that he cares about what she's saying. And this seems to be working. He reassures Mary they'll find even the smallest bit of mistletoe, and Mary just beams at him, smiling, clutching her hands together close to her body. This man's absolute pounding beers on a Monday morning riz is working on Mary like Coke cleaning a dirty penny. It is something to behold. Mary on the couch with the wives, no Cody, notably, says that Matt was cute. Robin is dismissive and even looks offended at her facial expression. 
Christine admits to flirting and then kind of girlishly covers her mouth as if, you know, she said something bad or naughty. She and Mary lean toward each other, sharing a laugh about this, which Robin rolls her eyes. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I think Robin is, like, doing this performatively for an audience of one, and it isn't us. I think Robin already is trying to differentiate herself from the other wives. And I use this word specifically. She's trying to come across as the loyal wife. Janelle, in the face of all this, smiles politely, but doesn't really give any real reaction. Mary and Christine say that it's fun to flirt, and Robin quietly kind of looks at the camera, points at them, and says, these two flirt. Again, this is what I'm talking about. Back at the Christmas tree lot, Matt sells them kissing balls. Kissing. Kissing balls. What? What? Tell me if this is a thing. I, I'm not against it. Just kissing balls? Like, let's put up the Christmas kissing balls? Is this a Utah thing? Let me know. Whatever. There's more conspiratorial bonding on the couch as Mary and Christine are agreeing that Matt was flirting back and they share another laugh together. I think that they really were bonding. I think they felt that they were safe and structured and, you know what I mean, but still going outside the boundaries of their relational norms with Cody, kind of pushing back a little bit on the freedoms Cody has that they don't. And to be fair, like, I don't see a reason for Cody to be jealous. I think that would be quite hypocritical, but whatever. Matt does a little spin with the tree, turns it around, and Mary says, that's the one. They were sold by that tree spin. And as they prepare to leave, Mary even hugs Matt, which Matt even seems to be quite surprised by. That man looks like he smells like chewing tobacco and child support, and I wish he was my friend. More footage of the brown kids playing outside the house in the snow. I see a third dog? A brown and white dog that I don't recognize? But again, the dog seems happy, as Robin is not there right now to yeet that dog over the fence into the cow pasture with her Cruella de Vil Ugg boot of doom. So, good for you, puppy. You're a good boy. Or girl. Christine talking about the cabin again. Says Cody is very frantic and stressed. And there is some amazing footage paired with this of Cody trying and failing to open a car trunk which is covered in snow. And he makes a face like, you know, like your toddler trying to make the boom boom happen on the potty. There's more talk about meshing of the families together, from Janelle specifically, on the couch. She laces her fingers to illustrate this process. But remember when they keep saying that the, that the meshing is done, the blending is done? The Brown family just manifests verbally instead of doing. I think this may be one of, if not their biggest issue, is they don't do the work, they just want to talk about it as if it's already been done. I really do believe this. Robin looks up a lot, showing, I think, some insecurity, as she says that there are traditions from the original wives in terms of Christmas. And she wants to bring something to Christmas as well. Again, interesting because later on Robin said they really didn't do much Christmas, or that, that's probably not true. She probably just said Cody didn't like it, but but still, it it still stuck out to me. At her rental, Robin is following up on this thought. She has a sheet of paper with some explanations of various symbols of Christmas, their meanings. She's made some ornaments with little charms that represent them, like candy canes and stuff like that. And I'll be honest, you know I give Robin a hard time. I loved this. She does give some put the Christ back in Christmas talk, which, you know, tracks with her personality. She talks about the affordability and personal touch of making the ornaments herself. This was really nice. This was a genuinely nice thing to do, 
to hand make ornaments for everybody, for the kids. That is really, really cute. I love doing stuff like that. Like as a parent, like my favorite ornaments are the ones my kids bring home from like preschool or school now for my oldest kid. I just, I love that stuff. I love handwritten stuff. I love stuff that's not perfect. I love things that are personal, things people made with their hands. I'm fascinated by it because I'm not very good with that kind of thing, but I do like to do it. You know what I mean? So it's like the personal thought and the personal touch can mean a lot. And that that's what this made me think of. She talks about the kids growing old and remembering this specific Christmas and that she loves them and she shrugs bashfully. This is on the couch at this point and Mary smiles at Robin very warmly. Mary seemed to really like this. I wonder if it resonated with Mary's pajamas thing. Getting to Janelle's tradition now, which is making a big traditional Christmas breakfast. And she says it's really just kind of an excuse to hang out with the family. She says this over footage that they pair with it of the Browns all gathered around in Janelle's place eating together. Christine said that she instituted St. Lucia's Day, where the oldest girls all make breakfast for the family. Robin even notes that Aurora is going to be involved for the first time this year. And uh, that Aurora is, uh, I guess, pretty excited about this, which is nice. Mary talks about making the kids pajamas, like I said, and she gifts them to them on Christmas Eve. We'll see that next episode, if my memory serves. Speaking of which, we see Mary at the sewing machine making those pajamas, and she recounts starting this tradition when the kids were little, like Leon was about two years old. Mary works on some pajamas, and her kitty tries to drink from her water glass, which is very cute. It's been talked to death about how America-themed her craft room is, but y'all, this was very, very America-themed. Yeah, really, just top-notch America. Mary recounts looking out the window of her craft room and seeing a police car outside, which really spooked her. She called Cody, she says, shaking, and she, she continues talking about this on the couch, and she does seem legitimately shaken up just talking about it, just remembering it. Cody and everyone else on the couch, by the way, are looking very intently at Mary. Christine, which you never really see, is even leaning over, bracing her arms on her knees, getting much more non-verbally attentive than normal to this story, whether that's because Christine wants to know what Mary's going to say, or she already knows what Mary's going to say and she wants to like give support by being an attentive listener, I don't know. But Mary has a lot of emotion in her voice, very shaken up when she talks about the cop drove away, and ultimately was just helping someone else stuck in a ditch. And she's, by, by this point, she's almost in tears talking about this fear she feels every time she sees police officers. Cody talks about struggling to manage the fear that he feels and the burden that it puts on the family. He sounds kind of lost, kind of unsure of what to do. He says that he needs answers. and Next to him, Janelle is blinking a lot. Janelle has very red eyes. She looks like she's been crying. You don't see her cry in the episode. But if you look at her couch footage, a lot of it, she looks like somebody who has been crying. Christine goes back to the story, the family narrative of her grandfather being arrested and her grandmother's being arrested and the whole family split up. Christine gets very emotional. She's holding back tears now talking about this. She doesn't cry, but she does seem like she's on the verge of it as she's speaking. Cody reiterates that historically speaking, when they prosecute for polygamy, they break up the family. Now, this isn't an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. The modern-day sort of version of polygamy that the Browns are living is not the exact same thing, but I, I guess I do see his point. We have lots of quick cuts now. The Browns packing lots and lots and lots of stuff. 
paper towels, food, clothes, looked like cat food at one point. So much stuff, you guys. Mary checks the kitchen clock, says it's almost 10, and laughs at first, but then sounds like she's getting kind of irritated, saying they're supposed to be leaving by now. Like, yo, I'm sorry, if there's one thing I don't have sympathy for, it's that this family continuously is shocked that they don't leave on time. You've never left on time. Just it, just admit to yourselves you won't leave on time. Why talk about this? Do you know what I mean? It starts to feel like a waste of my time as a viewer. Like, oh, oh, are you taking longer to, to get somewhere? Oh my gosh, are you going to have a flat tire too? Color me shocked. Anyway, the wives are on the couch, and Christine puts her fingers together, saying they're going to the cabin to reconnect. Mary talks over her a bit, saying without any outside, and then they cross-talk. But they're cross-talking in agreement, kind of echoing each other. Robin also shakes her head, tries to start speaking, but I can't hear what she says. Mary just ends up emphasizing that they need to get away. Christine quote-unquote jokes that they're packing the entire planet, but she's not really wrong. And to be fair to the Brown family, they are going to a remote location. Like, they can't just go get some milk or something, or some diapers for Truly if they run out. Like, they have to have everything for the entire time they'll be there. They can't forget anything. So, so I do understand why they need so much stuff, but it's so much stuff. It looks like they're moving out already. They're packing the Christmas tree, all the presents, everything. Christine is on the couch laughing about how they're late, as always, and getting going. Robin and a shell-shocked-looking Dayton enter the big house, and he's kind of goofing around, I think, emphasizing how cold he is. His hood is up, and he's got a heavy coat on. He dramatically kind of falls to the ground face first, and his sisters helpfully explain, he's cold. <laughs> Thank you. Dayton, by the way, at this age, really, really reminds me of myself. He just kind of speaks and acts in ways that I did. It's really kind of, it's not eerie, but it's just, it just resonates more than I remember now that I'm analyzing these episodes. I don't remember this occurring to me before now. Kind of a neat thing, honestly, to notice as I'm doing this. The adults on the couch say all the teenagers really want to go to the cabin. They're excited. And the editors, once again, are my best friends doing a smash cut to McKelty on a laptop, giving this dramatic sigh, saying they should stay home. Madison sort of agrees with this, as she loves her family, but she shakes her head and says, too much and you want to rip your hair out. Hunter, for his part, because Hunter is always just a stand-up guy, has a better attitude, says it'll probably be fun. All the adults are on the couch as Cody's eyes are darting around a bit, talking about how stressful it got towards the end. Says, maybe not nuts, but Mary picks up for him and finishes his thought, saying it was high stress, which Cody agrees with. We see this happen. Now, Cody is in Mary's apartment. He is visibly frustrated. Talking to Christine, asking where Janelle is. Christine, probably not super helpful, pantomimes doing a Charles Xavier mind-reading gimmick, which I loved, but seems to really annoy Cody. Cody sarcastically thanks her, says that he wishes that she would really learn to read minds, and he says he doesn't like Christine right now. Christine, almost jovial, but I think kind of trying to roll with some hurt, says, I'm not taking that personal. So did Cody handle that moment very well? No, but he didn't handle it that badly. He at least said right now. You know, saying you don't like your partner isn't a good thing, but that qualifier of right now did soften it. He could have vented that frustration much more destructively. I give him C+. 
Cody is really stressed, okay? His nonverbal behaviors are all just screaming stress. Lots of hair touching, self-soothing, quick movements. The wives on the couch. Right now, Mary is looking down. He says, Cody's at a high level of stress. And Robin actually laughs a bit and says, he doesn't have the luxury of falling apart. He's the captain of the ship. Which I think was Robin creating space to kind of justify Cody's behavior. I mean, she's, she's not really wrong, right? When you're a parent and things are bad, you're kind of not allowed to act like things are bad to kids sometimes. You know, sometimes, especially with older kids, you can explain why you're feeling stressed. But I mean, when you're in crisis mode, like you kind of got to be unflappable sometimes, as unfair as that may be to you. So I do see what she's saying. Janelle and Christine are talking about the importance of traveling on time, specifically because they got to get to the cabin while it's still daylight. So that's an interesting wrinkle. They only have one out of like the 500 vehicles they own. They only have one with four-wheel drive that can get all the way to the cabin. So yeah, I could see why they'd be more stressed about the usual Brown family lateness. They are bringing that very real Christmas tree they got from Moonshine Matt. And Cody is strapping it to the roof of the Honda. Christine, she says, does have a fake tree, but she looks down and, and with some seriousness, but I do think she was joking, says it would be a slap in the face to the cabin to bring a fake tree. Let me know, are y'all team like real tree or fake tree? I don't want to tell you what I am. I want you to guess. Cody is mounting more stuff to the roofs of vehicles, complaining while doing so. He's very on edge and gives me the energy of a dad who's about to pop off if things don't go the right way. Kind of concerning. On the couch, Robin continues to discursively make space for Cody, talking about, again, he's putting it all on his shoulders. He has all these people he's concerned about. And she looks at her camera doing her big frowny face. Y'all know the face. The frowny face she makes when she wants to come across as serious. She's, again, I think, playing to when Cody later sees this episode. Mary does agree with Robin, by the way, says it's hard for Cody. He always takes control and tries to fix things, and he can't. And Mary pauses a bit and gestures, kind of, I don't think, isn't really sure where to go with that. And says he, he can't control everything, basically, is what she's saying. And Robin agrees, but Mary keeps talking, doesn't let Robin take over. Says that that's hard for him. There's kind of a funny moment to give Cody some credit, some good humor. Hunter once again points out how late they're leaving. And Cody says, you know what, Hunter, you're right. Would you organize this for us next time? That was a pretty good way of acknowledging maybe the impropriety of Hunter's statement without being mean. So anyway, they do leave with only a few hours of daylight left. This is getting kind of tense, you know, rather than the forced tension bong noises from the editors. Like, I'm a little bit stressed out. There's a certain point as they approach the cabin where they have to park any vehicles without four-wheel drive. And like I said, there's only one vehicle I guess they have that they can safely drive the rest of the way. We meet Wes briefly, the manager of Rustic Mountain Retreats, who I'm assuming is the person that rented them the cabin. He's giving Cody some instructions. Janelle points out as Cody starts driving further down the path that there's not actually a road. It's more like the snowblower just like created some space to move, kind of a path, a very snowy, icy path between two big snowbanks. Cody even equates it to a ski slope. Cody, really out of breath, tells the camera about his plan to dump stuff at the cabin, take the four-wheel drive vehicle back, and repeat and repeat and repeat, grab family, etc. This is followed up by footage I found really hilarious of him trying to do so and fishtailing that vehicle, like he's back at my hometown in the morning before the salt trucks are out. Oh, gave me flashbacks. 
At one point, Cody, it's really dark out, and Cody, we see, he has packed the back of that truck with stuff to the absolute brim, and quite grimly, he says, I'm going to have to take another trip. Hey, we're in the cabin. We see inside the cabin, it is packed with Brown family stuff and Brown family members. Janelle, being positive, says, hey, at least we have the kids inside warm, which is true. Hunter has a Santa hat on, very jolly. I always wear a Santa hat around the house and even just like out in public around Christmas time. I don't know, I just like to do that. I notice a number of Browns and Lehigh football hoodies, including Peyton. Cabin interior seemed quite nice. Obviously, obviously, it's lots of wood. Really warm, comfortable space. Christine is praising how pretty it is on the couch. And Cody leans forward and kind of laughs as it wasn't big enough because Cody just can't enjoy anything. Mary clarifies it's actually a pretty good amount of space, but they just have, you know, a massive amount of people. And there's all this footage of them bringing in bags and bags and boxes and boxes of stuff. It is so cluttered. It looks like an episode of Hoarders right now. It is overwhelming to me. I'm not a clutter guy. I gotta have a clear space. I can deal with clutter when it's temporary. But if it's too much, I just break and I gotta clear stuff out. It is very dark out now. Cody is ordering folks on how to grab all the food and other materials. Poor Leon almost falls down on the snow-covered path, but they don't. Cody on the couch quite somber, saying he doesn't know what to do, doesn't know how to deal with it, so just protect his family. I thought there was kind of a lovely shot of the catwalk upstairs in the cabin, and the Browns had hung some kind of fake holly or whatever garland and a big blanket that says family stitched on it. Madison, though, is in the shot walking around holding her phone up, seemingly trying to find cell service, so that was an interesting contrast. Cody again on the couch foreshadowing the move to Vegas, pausing a lot between thoughts. Says he has to make decisions that are tough. And he has kind of a thousand-yard stare as he arrives at the point that he has to do things that people don't want to hear. Janelle still with the notably like red eyes, I think from crying, quite stone-faced next to him. Cody doesn't seem very at peace, but he does sound like he's accepting what's going on, if that makes sense, but he lets out this big, heavy sigh. Back at the cabin, Cody is sniffing and red-faced from cold. He talks about having to go fetch snowmobiles from a rep who'd been, I guess, waiting there all day for the Browns to show up. I hope that person was paid fairly. Imagine standing around in the cold all day because the Browns cannot arrive on time for anything. Yikes. Anyway, Cody says they need the snowmobiles for the next day, and it's already pitch black outside. Janelle stays with the kids so that they can get fed. And Logan goes in Janelle's stead, which she sounds genuinely appreciative of. The Browns get briefed on how to ride the snowmobiles safely, and they'll have helmets on. Get a little bit of over-the-shoulder camera shots of them riding, which I thought was neat, but there's really not very much footage. There's more snowmobile stuff in the next episode, though, so maybe I'll talk about it then. Cody and Logan bring the tree into the cabin, and Mary compliments how nice the tree is. And I don't think I've said this the whole episode. It, it, it's, it is. It's a beautiful, big, full beautiful tree. They start to decorate it, and on the couch, Mary and Robin are sharing smiles about this, agreeing that decorating was a lot of fun. Mary, quite matter-of-fact, said they still had the investigation on their heads, and Robin bites a lip and nods in agreement, but no one else really reacts to this. Robin's facials, by the way, her facial expressions, tend to be much more over-the-top than anyone else's, I've noticed. Do with that information whatever you want. 
Mary says the police have turned over their findings to the county attorney, and they edit in another big cannon sound boom over footage of the brown kids decorating the tree, laying it on a bit thick for my taste, honestly. We see footage of various browns cuddling, talking, all looking very happy in the cabin, but they intercut this with Cody on the couch, talking about the stress, not knowing what will happen. Once again, going back to the historical aspect, and Cody, at this point, really genuinely breaks down, I think. He can't get his words out. He tears up. He can't really speak. He's not sure what to say. Doesn't seem fake to me like before. Like, this seems like the genuine emotion. When one is emotional and doesn't want to cry, but you're talking about an emotional topic that can trigger tears, that's what Cody looks like. And I'm sorry, you contrast this with how Robin is always just immediately overcome with tears. Like, it's just, it's just like, it, I mean, there aren't tears usually, but it's just this instantaneous thing. It doesn't really happen like that. Cody seems a lot more genuine. He actually seems like he's trying and failing to manage this physiological reaction of crying that he's having because of his intense emotions. Because speaking can release those emotions in a way that other things don't. Anyway, he gets a sad, very heavy voice and he sighs. And finally says that they're moving out of state. He's very overcome. He says it makes this Christmas kind of an exceptional time for the Browns. And that's the end of the episode. Pretty emotional ending, at least on Cody's part. It, kind of powerful to me to see Cody genuinely sad after what I think was like performatively, like pathos-heavy, persuasive, kind of false, I don't want to say false, but definitely performative sadness earlier. Kind of different. I do feel, though, like, what were they thinking was going to happen? I know there's some discourse, and this actually I think gets picked up on in the next episode from Christine, if I remember, but there's some discourse online that the Browns just really wanted to move, and this was just their excuse. That could be true. I really don't know. Either way, though, the stress is real. The stress of upsetting their children, of leaving their home, and moving is stressful, period. No matter how excited you are to move, it's a hard thing to do. And the police aspect has got to be stressful, even if they were already planning to move, not knowing what the police or the prosecutor might do. It's got to be stressful, I think. There we go. My name is Dr. Adam. I'm the Sister Wives professor. I'm a teacher. I'm a researcher. I'm a follower of Sister Wives. And I want to thank you for letting me be your noise today. I hope that you're kind to yourself because you do deserve kindness. If you want to support this podcast, the best thing that you can do is, if you're not already, follow, subscribe, whatever you want to call it, on whatever platform you're listening to it. If you have something you want to say to me, go ahead and send me an email, thesisterwivesprofessor at gmail.com. And if you like this and you want more Sister Wives content, if you want to hear me talk about Welcome to Plathville, Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, or even if you just like the sound of my voice and you want podcasts where I just say nice things to you to help you fall asleep, we've got all that stuff and more at patreon.com slash thesisterwivesprofessor. Regardless, thank you for existing. The world is better because you do. And I'll talk to you really soon, okay? See you later. Mm-hmm.